0: This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today and joined as always by my my good friend, my business partner, uh, the one, the only Jason, Neil, Patrick, Harris, Johnston, Yellen. Here I be. There you are. Did I tell you how I met your mother? Hi, everybody. Oh, you keep my mother's name out of your mouth. He was in that show, right? Is it How I Met Your Mother, or is it How I Met Your Father?
1: Yes, he was the the womanizing, uh, toxic white male.
0: Oh, I love that he played a womanizing, toxic white man. I mean, I don't like that anyone plays that, (laughs) but... It's your favorite kind of character. (laughs) If I could
1: be any character, (laughs) I would be... Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. I just dig the juxtaposition of... uh, a, a very out gay man playing toxic masculinity, straight man. I just love that.
1: Well, and that, that's always been my question, is I don't know if he was out at the time he was playing that character.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I, I thought he'd been out for years and years and years. Oh, maybe not.
1: I, I don't think so, because the other one is is Sean Hayes when he was on Will and Grace. Playing a, a very flamboyant gay man was not he out. He was not out. He was play, He was playing that as a yeah. straight actor. Quote very unquote.
0: interesting, right? It it goes to show you how different today's world is as compared to Will and Grace. Right. Um, right. Wow. There you go. Which is
1: an incredibly homophobic show while being, you know, <laughs> supposedly supportive of gay rights. What was it? So, really, at the time, there were no gay people starring in Will and Grace. Sandra Bernhard gets a number of cameos, and I think she was squarely out at that time. But, San- but had yeah, none of the leads. Sandra Bernhardt is gay. I say you missed one memo. <laughs>
0: do
1: you remember she used to cameo on Roseanne as well?
0: Yeah, I do, but I don't. I don't necessarily remember her her sexuality being part of the conversation i just thought she was a a funny lady i wasn't wasn't the first gay kiss
1: on american network tv between roseanne and sandra bernard could be i don't remember it man you just you just slept through all these high cultural points i tell you like an awakening no no i'm still (laughs) sleeping
0: yeah, I guess I, I, guess I missed minutes. that. I mean, I caught Captain James T. Kirk and Uhura's uh, lovely kiss. Not you while did? I was, not while I was you alive. You saw that not on network? Not while I was alive, but I, I, I caught the rerun <laughs> when I was much younger.
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I was trying to get at. <laughs> what year was that? Not that you know the answer, but what year do you think that was for the first interracial Kiss on American Network TV.
0: If I'm not mistaken, I thought it was 67, 68, as as a guess. I I have no counter. uh, 60s make sense to me. Yeah, there's going to be some podcast listener that's going to be like, First off, you got this date wrong. Secondly, Neil Patrick Harris has always been out. Thirdly.
1: (laughs) That's why we don't need to spend time researching, right? It's fantastic. Listen, if we can allow our listeners a gotcha, I I think we've done our job here, right? I think that's perfect. We have set them up to be the expert. Uh, That makes me happy. I
0: think it's our our
1: moral duty. to Our moral duty, you're right. You're right, you're right. Those are the exact words. It's our moral duty. Well, you certainly give them more opportunities than most, so you must be the most moral around here.
0: <laughs> it's more or less duty. Um, so li- listen, uh, terrible, terrible. It sounds
1: like duty when you say
0: it. I know. It sounds I know. Like duty. I can't. I can't. I can't not think of the word duty when I hear the word duty. I'm so glad you're not a Kantian then. You froze. Say that again.
1: (laughs) I'm so glad you're not a Kantian then. It froze again. (laughs) (laughs) You're not picking me up saying the word Kantian.
0: Kantian. Oh, I'm not. Yes. (laughs) Everyone's a bit of a Kantian sometime Everyone's a bit of a Kantian sometime we
1: sing that at philosophy conferences yeah.
0: <laughs> Listen anyway, um, What are we doing here?
1: What, what's this all about? What's wh- it all
0: about, Charlie? Well, we, we've we got a few things to get to Obviously, we have two guests Well, would you, would you say one and a half? Oh, I'd say two guests But we have Jeff Bloom, a maltster, uh, on—not to be confused with Jeff Goldblum. They're two very different blooms, if you will. Mm. A hipster. Uh, But then also Amanda. What? What's that?
1: (laughs) Jeff Goldblum is not a maltster. He's a hipster.
0: Oh, he is a hipster. Can you be a hipster at that age? I think if you're Jeff Goldblum, yes. Yeah, you could be anything if you're Jeff Goldblum. Uh, But it was nice to have a surprise appearance. By Amanda Beckwith a Virginia Distillery Company. So
1: yeah. yeah, I didn't think of her as, as half a guest. I thought of her as a temporary co-host. Even though, as listeners will, will hear in today's interview, we go through a tour of a malting house and then we bring Amanda in. Amanda was there the entire time. But once we bring Amanda in, she gets in a couple of questions to to Jeff. And it's it's a new wrinkle. It's an additional wrinkle. I, mm. I loved it. It was great mm. on the day.
0: And it was great listening back
1: to it afterwards as
0: well. Well in and this conversation was was a bit different in that you were on. A tour of a malting house and i think the last time we did a conversation where we were taken around on a tour would have been with denny potter back when he was with heaven hill right
1: exactly yeah. exactly and we were looking at the new column still that was being yeah. In, I was gonna say inserted that doesn't sound like the right installed would be the correct word for the size of that column still you couldn't insert
0: it you could only install it well, now with that attitude <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to bring up before we got on to the conversation with with you uh Jeff and Amanda uh Past few episodes, you've been very kind to bring on some emails and sort of front load them into the episode. But but we mm-hmm. actually received some podcast comments on Apple Podcasts. So I thought, why not front load those this time and maybe save an email until after the the interview? How's that sound? Sounds ideal. Sounds
1: tickety-boo. I'm excited, people have been so people have been going to the Apple source of the podcast and rating and putting comments. Correct.
0: It's You know, it's kind of interesting that that's where you go to make the comments, even, even for those who, who aren't Mac-centric. You kind of got to do it in Apple iTunes. So if you're a Spotify user or Stitcher user or, or any of these, like, we'll never capture those stars. So all we could do is keep on... Begging those who are on <laughs> Apple to um, to do that. So. Apple, yeah.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate the people who have taken the time. So let's hear what they've got to say for themselves.
0: So one came in uh, on, on May 22nd, and the person's name, well, so the subject is simply called Top Pad Cost. Five stars. Goody. And the person's name Goody. is... Hassenfeffer, which at first I thought it was. When I read that, I said, Oh, that's smart because that's Steve Martin's character in The Man with Two Brains. But that's actually, no, no. it's Dr. Michael Mm -hmm. Heffer. Yeah. I love that. Love that name in that film. (laughs) Love it. Harr. 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 But no, <laughs> Hassan Pfeffer is uh, is is completely different. That may actually be this person's birth name. Laverne and
1: Shirley. It's the opening uh, song when they do the Schleasle, counting.
0: Shmazel, Hassan Pfeffer Incorporated. There you We're gonna do it, and it just not to go now. <laughs>
1: okay, um, so. Did I tell you I I recently read Penny Marshall's biography? You didn't.
0: I didn't know she had a no, it's good.
1: biography. She does indeed. Yeah, it's something like my mom was crazy, or or I'm crazy, or everyone's crazy, or something like that. But it was it was really good, really interesting, as these tales always are. And how she got her start, and her and her brother Gary, and how they ended up in the movies. Oh. She was married to Rob Reiner. She was,
0: and what wasn't Frank? She was Frank Marshall, her dad. Do I have that right? Uh,
1: I only came prepared with Gary. I have no other information on her family Well,
0: Could you do a little work and get back to me on that, please? If any listener wants to write in and tell us the name
1: of Penny Marshall's father, that would be much appreciated.
0: So uh, Hassan Pfeffer Incorporated says... In a world. That's how it starts off. In a, In a world. world. Perfect. You ready for this? Absolutely. Okay. Hold all commentary, all chuckles until after cuz I need to get through this. Mhm. In a world where you have a queue of podcast episodes to catch up on. There are specific species of spectacular spitfires who specialize in spires of spirits and the wonders of whiskey with whimsical wanderings and (laughs) whirling wisps of warmth and wisdom. I told you to hold on to your chuckles, Jason. That brings the episode to the forefront so that you can stay close to what they're doing, thinking, and drinking, such as this chin-chin.
1: I just love the thought of somebody sitting there thinking, what could I write that would be impossibly difficult for Joshua to read on the podcast <laughs> slash <laughs> podcast? <pad> <laughs> and then that's where they came up with, oh my gosh, give me this again.
0: So that's the thing. I knew or I felt uh-huh. as if that was the aim. And so I've practiced <laughs> reading this 87 times. All right.
1: Well. <laughs> Practice does make something close and to so perfect. Says, you, you read that better than you read most regular <laughs>
0: sentences. That was
1: very well done.
0: In a world where you have a queue of podcast episodes to catch on. Who see there to catch up on? (laughs) (laughs) Don't relax. You gotta stay tense. Stay tense, John. I'm squeezing my uh, cheeks. You're not home free yet. There are specific species of spectacular Spitfires who specialize in spires of spirits and the wonders of whiskey with whimsical wanderings and whirling wisps of warmth and wisdom. That (laughs) (laughs) That brings the episode to the forefront so that you can stay close to what they're doing, thinking and drinking, such as this chin chin.
1: Fuck me. That is awesome. That is so well done because it it's not just gibberish. It's not just a series of words that are intended to, you know, trip the tongue, but that is beautifully communicated. Serious kudos to this reviewer. Gosh. They gave us five stars. I'm giving them five stars. So right what back. are
0: they communicating? Like, I, I felt as if that was, that was like...
1: <laughs> you read it how many times?
0: <laughs> I just felt as if a bunch of words were thrown into a Yahtzee can and then just like... Psh. Oh, no,
1: not in the slight. That's why I wanted you to read it a second time, because the first time I'm getting the tongue-twisting joke oh, of it okay. all, the second time is, okay, did they just string some words together or were they saying mm. something? Hell being called a couple of spitfires now that that is compliment enough but then being whimsical and and turning things on themselves no that was lovely cheers yeah, to so that
0: spitfire is something you call someone who's clearly not a spitfire but they're acting spitfire like like oh grandma Dolores she's 87 <laughs> what a spitfire <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would only take that as a
0: compliment.
1: I think that's only a nice thing to say about someone in their 80s.
0: We're not even in their 50s. As long as she's not being a Kantian, like,
1: what's the issue? And hell, if you're 87, hell, become a Kantian as well. Can one be
0: contrarian? Contrary? Absolutely.
1: Well, if you're you're contrary to the work of Kant, of course, you could be contrarian.
0: And so the other one. It's all just duty to you. <laughs> so the other comment here, another five-star review here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Now, you've, you've teed
1: this up in a way that this is going to be difficult for the second one to top the first one.
0: Like, have we already, you know, have we shot our load here? No, Yeah. this one is much more straightforward. There's no doubt about it. But I just, I, I'm reading them in order of receipt so we. Right? That's fair. Right. That's fair. Takes all moral judgment all out of it. Of it. Yeah. Uh, so this is from John K. Mill. I don't know what that means.
1: Well, John Stuart Mill was a famous utilitarian, so maybe he's a, a distant cousin of John Stuart Mill. This John K. Mill.
0: Hmm. So it's subjected. Uh, hear ye, hear ye. Good opening. I like it. And it says five stars all around from the best team in the business. Great show, banter, and most importantly, what do you think? What do you think John K. Mill says is most importantly? We got the great show, we got the banter, and most importantly,
1: philosophical dialogue.
0: I I, I can't do this, Jason.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the lowest hanging of all yeah. low-hanging fruit.
0: <laughs> the, most importantly, the intermittent Kilhoman mentions. <laughs> I love that. There's a Kilhoman fanatic. Is like, they mention Kilhoman every once in a while? You gotta love these guys. I, I dig it.
1: I like the use of intermittent. I feel like it's pretty regular.
0: <laughs> That's I don't know, We're talking about the duty at that point. Um, <laughs>
1: is, there, is, there an inter- is there an episode we've put out that doesn't feature a Kilhoman reference? <laughs> Actually, to be fair, some of the interviews, if you play them backwards, they're only about Kilhoman. <laughs> Even though on the face of it, they're about something completely unrelated. Play it backwards. Uh. My mother asked for a Kilhoman. She asked me to get her one. You'll just hear it. It's plain as day. <laughs>
0: And so John K. Mill, camel, 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 says what's not to love, and then closes it out with Silver Spring has a lot of SCN fans.
1: Ooh! There you go. He's not wrong. He's not wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
1: so Silver Spring,
0: nice. So huge thanks to uh, Hasan Pfeffer and John K. Mill.
1: That's excellent. Uh, yeah it's nice hearing those. It's always good being on the road and people talking about the pad cost and and how much they enjoy. It. I actually uh, had dinner with uh, James Foster ah. while I was on the road and and James was just so kind in his praise uh, of our of our pad cost and our inclusion of him in it. He also you will be very pleased to hear this Joshua. Let us know that we
0: mispronounce Sinar. <laughs> oh, can we? I, is he ne- not the only one? I need to. He's not the only one. And <laughs> so can we bring this one. up afterwards? Because this is. We need to discuss this.
1: You honestly think we're going to remember to circle back to this after listening to this interview?
0: If I'm in charge, Jason, chances are not. But I'm going to let you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you remember it okay. that way. Well, we're, do
1: you want to. Do you want to tell the listeners what I'm holding right now?
0: He's holding his boner pencil.
1: It is my boner. It's a boner pen, sir. Uh, It's a boner. It's a boner pen, pen. sir. Yep. Still haven't worked out what bone that is, but it it is it is hearty, isn't
0: it? I think it's a femur. So it's a pen in the shape of of what I assume to be a cartoon femur.
1: I have written a note to remind us... Good. ...to circle back to our mispronunciation of cyanur. Sayonara.
0: Sayonara.
1: <laughs> All right. <laughs> should, we, should we cut to this interview here?
0: Yep. Let's do it now, Jason.
1: Yeah. Murphy and Rude is the, the maltster. hmm Jeff Bloom hosted uh, for the day. It's such a, a kind gesture. As we always do with these interviews, we kept somebody away from honest work uh, for a good few hours hmm. while they entertained me and, and, uh, and hopefully will <laughs> ultimately entertain our listeners as well. You'll hear passion. Uh, it's one of the things I love about this industry is no matter where you turn, you, you talk to somebody who's working on yeast, you talk to somebody who's working on grain, you talk to someone who's distilling, you talk to somebody who's, you know, working on casks everyone is passionate about the niche that they occupy and is passionate about the larger industry. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in talking to a maltster, to the forefront of Jeff's mind is beer and all of the breweries with whom they work. Obviously, as we said earlier, I was there with Amanda Beckwith of Virginia Distillery Company. She organized this visit. And so that gave us an opportunity to ask a few more questions about distillation and, and fermentation ahead yeah. of distillation. And, and yeah, as you listen to this interview, you'll hear Jeff right a few wrongs that existed in my own brain mm-hmm. and, and just kind of fine tunes how you understand malting when it comes to you from a distiller and how you understand malting when it comes to you from a maltster. Yeah. And so, you know, all of us, and I think a lot of people listening to this podcast, have been around a distillery or two, have had malting described to them. Jeff adds layer upon layer to yeah. that rudimentary understanding yeah. in this interview. Yeah. And I, I had a blast, absolute blast. So Without further ado, I, I think I've, I've put up enough signposts. We'll go right over to Jeff at Murphy & Rood in Charlottesville, Virginia.
2: Well, hello. My name is Jeff Bloom. Welcome to uh, Murphy & Rood Malting Company here in Charlottesville, Virginia. It looks like we're going to be taking a little walk through the malt house here, so enjoy I suppose, not that you can see us, but hopefully we will inspire uh, your imagination so much that you can see it happening as we, as we discuss it. Um, all right, so we are, uh, we're gonna kind of follow the grain here. Um, and so we are over here uh, on the steeping side of the facility um, in front of our five-ton steep tank. It is essentially an old style 120 barrel fermenter that's been re-engineered and refabricated to accept kind of the needs of, of, of steeping, if you will. So the internal uh, cone, obviously it's a cone bottom fermenter. Uh, the, the inside of that cone has an, a perforated layer uh, inside that uh, allows us to drain the water off while keeping the grain in the tank. Uh, during air rest, which we'll get to momentarily here. Uh, Sandwiched between that perforated inner cone and the outer cone wall are three air rings uh, that are all hooked to a a manifold that connects to a compressed air. And that is how we both aerate our steep liquor or our steep water. and we also rouse the piece while it's in the in the steep tank to keep everybody loose and happy and uncompacted, if you will, which um, aids in water uptake with airflow during uh, during steeping air rests, and then also allows us to get it the heck out of the tank uh, when we need to. So that is um, that's what we're in front in front of now. We are primarily Virginia grown uh, based grain here, so we amongst us are i don't know about 35 or 40 super sacks or big bulk totes of uh of grain we've got primarily barley over here we've got some a state grown grain that we contract malt for some of our brewery customers that they grow on their end ship to us to malt and then we ship it back to them for their own brewing we've got some corn in the steep tank as we speak We just got done with some wheat. We're taking a wheat delivery uh, later this week, but we also malt barley, wheat, like I mentioned, corn, oats. Uh, We have a bit of spelt in the back right now. Um, We will be bringing back rye hopefully this year now that we've got some additional capacity. So um, if it grows, theoretically speaking, you can malt it. Um, That does not mean you should, but you could theoretically if you wanted to.
1: Can I ask you a quick follow-up about the rye? For producers of rye that we've spoken with, they talk about it becoming this porridge, this oatmeal that sticks. As a maltster,
2: what's rye like for malting? Similar, unfortunately. Uh, So we actually have to we have to malt it somewhat carefully so rye has those characteristics because it has many it has a very high pentosin load which are essentially in a in combined fashion uh what you would call um insoluble gums which are what are causing that kind of pasty uh sticky mess um, oftentimes people think well rye's just got a lot of protein in it that's actually not Um, That's not necessarily true, it could be high protein, just like barley or wheat could, but it's really not the, uh, it's got just as much protein as wheat does, and wheat is not nearly as problematic. Rye's tough, it's a very small kernel, it's huskless, Mm. so it uh, uptakes water fairly quickly, but then you're also growing an acrospire and rootlets exposed, and they can really pack in tight together, particularly in a steep tank like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we were, for instance, to allow it to progress too far in the steep tank, it would be particularly difficult to get it out um, because it really packs into this really tight piece, right? It's kind of like it can theoretically turn into what you would, Probably likened to concrete if left to um, <laughs> if left to its own devices. So it's really all about timing, but also being gentle with it during malting. Um, we got to have we have to keep those acrospires intact, which w- makes malting barley much easier because it's, those acrospires are protected by the uh, by the husk. But uh, in the case of rye, and we we need to we need to be extra careful, um, and so we just need to manage moisture content. We need to make sure it's loose and aerated. Because these grains pack in tight, um, you have to make sure you get air through them so you keep a very healthy um, aerobic germination. Mm. And so uh, rye can sometimes become the bad child in the malt house if, like it does in, in, a, in a brew house or a distillery if, uh, if left unchecked. Uh, All right, so moving on here, I guess. So um, loading, you know, steep tank, we're typically looking at about a two, maybe three day process in the dead of winter. We are loading grain into the bucket elevator, takes it up to the top of the steep tank, loads that in from the top where we are um, combining it with rousing water as we add it. Uh, Steeping's really three primary goals here. Number one and most important is hydration. So we're hydrating the endosperm. We'll talk about why shortly here. But as part of hydrating, you are inherently increasing the moisture content. Um, The moisture content is a trigger of germination. So when you get towards 30, 32, 33%, uh, germination has more or less officially begun and you have started the process of malting. Uh, A third... Uh, indirect but highly beneficial part is we're actually washing the grain we're getting you know some of that microflora off any dust and dirt from the uh, from the field and we're giving the grain honestly a good bath and over the course of soaks and air rests and refill soaks and air rests again we're kind of just uh, we are systemic systematically kind of rinsing that grain out um, and so we can get rid of a lot of the uh, undesirable stuff that's coming from the field. Uh, we skim off any floaters, which typically are a sign of immature or uh, non-germinating kernels. Um, or, but we can also get you know some foreign seeds or um, straw or, or um, uh, stalk material off of it. So we're you know inherently kind of cleaning the batch at the beginning of. The at the beginning of steeping here. Uh, So over the course of two, maybe three days, we will give it a soak in water, it will drink. Uh, We will let that occur for about eight to 12 hours or so, give or take. It's kind of based on the personality of the grain and how it likes water. Um, And then we will drain that water off. We will allow it to air rest in the tank, uh, pulling air in from the germination room and via a fan on the side of the cone. We are pulling out heat and CO2 that's being produced during the air rest and replacing it with cool, humid air coming in from the top, so we keep the grain cool and calm and, and uniform.
1: I like what you're saying there about the personality of the grain. Now, within, say, barley, Will you find it absorbing in different ways from where it was grown, how it was grown, how it was watered? Or are you talking across grains, like barley will behave in one way and rye will behave in another way and millet or spelt will behave in another way? What are you seeing there? How's that manifesting itself?
2: It's, a, it's a, probably one of the most important pieces of malting, in my humble opinion, um, and also one of the most difficult. So across grain varieties, um, or grain types, I should say, so barley, wheat, six, you know, two-row barley, six-row barley, wheat, rye, spelt, oats, whatever. um, Obviously, there will be some differences. Some of that has to do with how you want the end product to to be. Um, But even within a particular type, and let's take barley in this instance, varieties can be different, but even within those singular varieties, harvest years can change their personality. And so learning the given personality of a given variety of grain in that particular harvest year from that particular farm is the art of malting, really, of figuring out what you want this stuff to do, but it's more or less going to tell you how it's going to do it. Um, and figuring that out before perhaps we steep in five to 10 to 20 tons, um, is a, is a pretty helpful and good idea. So we do what we call germ tests. We test its vigor of germination, uh, under a, fairly modest amount of water, which is what you would get in like an ideal setting. Um, But then we also test it in excessive amounts of water. So we have a four milliliter water test and a eight milliliter uh, germination test. And so we will see how that grain germinates in those different water contents. And we can, number one, figure out, okay, how many what percentage of these grains are actually germinating over three days. We typically want that to be over 95%, no matter what we're malting. That To make malt, you have to have grain that's germinating. So if 80% of it's germinating, you're gonna have 80% malt and 20% raw adjuncts in, in that particular batch. So you want germination rates to be high. Looking between the four mil and the eight mil, if there's a difference in that final germination rate of 20 to 25 or more, that is a suggestion that that grain is water sensitive. So if your grain on a four mil plate is germinating at 100 and on an eight milliliter plate, it's germinating at 75 or 80, it's not that that grain is not germinating, it just really doesn't like too much water. And it's mostly because it probably got rained on before harvest and it's gotten its fill. And so it's, you know, water sensitivity is what we call it because that's what it is. It it is sensitive to the uptake of water. So it changes how we steep it, for instance. So we will, in that case, lower the length of our soaks and lengthen the time of our air rests. So we just give it a little water it will take that water up very quickly, but then it'll say, Hey, I'm good on this. And then those air rests allow it time to really pull that water in to that endosperm and fully hydrate that, that kernel. So getting to the main concept of, of steeping, there's a difference between moisture content and hydration. Yes, they are both going up. Um, they, they are, uh, directly correlated in that, in that particular sense. However, just because a grain is 42% moisture does not mean it's fully hydrated. So you can get a particular lot of Violetta, two row malting barley from one region of the state that is fully hydrated at 43% moisture. In the, the case of the Violetta that we have right now, Um, It's fully hydrating at like 47 or 48, which makes it incredibly difficult to deal with on the steeping end here um, because we have to get more water on it than you normally would, that would normally be necessary for it to actually be fully hydrated. So moisture content is secondary. Hydration is primary. So, So let's, you know, fast forward where we have... Uh, We have been in the steep tank for two, maybe three days in the case of this very stubborn barley we're working with now. Uh, We are at maybe 42 or so percent moisture and it is time to steep out. So we'll fill this tank with water one last time. We steep out in what we call a a grain water slurry. Uh, We'll pull the knife gate open. The eight foot diameter tank Whittles down to a three-inch pipe that goes into a uh, a centrifugal uh, recessed um, recessed pump that pumps that grain up through the piping over the top of the germination room and drops down, and we have the choice of putting that grain into one of two germination vessels, and so that would be the completion of steep out. What's important about how you steep out is that because we steep out in a grain water slurry we have essentially re-soaked that water periodically and so or or temporarily and so when we steep out that the next 12 to 24 hours are really a an additional air rest because we have soaked that water and it needs time to process that water before it actually fully begins respirating again and so we count our steep out day is an additional short soak, depending on uh, whether it needs to be short or long, it can be whatever it wants. But um, that following day, we take a what we call a day two germination moisture because that moisture will be higher 24 hours after we steep out because all of that water it's steeped out with has been absorbed by that grain. So we steep out at one percentage point 24 hours later, it's different. Mm -hmm. So we have to take that into consideration as well. So I guess moving on, we have steeped out into the germ room. So we are going to, I assume, enter, if you would like, Um, are about 600 square foot. So it's about 20 by 30 walk-in cooler. I don't know. This thing was probably like in a Costco somewhere. (laughs) Uh, It was here when we arrived. We took over this facility from a... um, from a juice company, and so this used to be where they stored all of their produce and vegetables. We were re- initially going to couch our grain in this room and then cast it onto our 2,000 square foot floor malting floor in the back here. Uh, I had a moment of sanity and uh, clarity at some point about about 24 hours before we started construction on this place and said, all of this has to change. This is, this is not right. Oh. And so this, what was once a couching room, became our full bore germination room. We completely abandoned the concept of floor malting and went to pneumatic salad and box driven Perfect. germination. Okay. Um, most people would think that floor malting is cheaper. <laughs> uh, it is 100% not. Uh, particularly if the building's not yours uh, or if you have it in anywhere but an ag-zoned location. So you have sprinklers to drop, lights to drop, FR- walls to FRP, um, floors to epoxy, so on and so forth. It can get a little pricey. So that uh, that changed how the entire kind of trajectory of the malt house. Um, and thankfully so. I mean, we, we are able to produce six times the amount of grain in this just small square foot, 6,000 square foot side of this facility than we would have been able to with floor malting. Um, But onward into the germ room. So germination, really what we're doing here is recreating mother nature. So we're recreating the ground conditions that a a seed of barley would see. Um, And so this room is Unlike a normal walk-in refrigerator, this room is about 60 degrees and 95% humidity. So we're this all of this this four tons of barley thinks it's in the ground right now, and has no idea that it is actually all packed into a roughly six foot by 20 foot salad and box. Um, it has no idea because we are keeping it. Cool and calm and collected, just like it would be in a in the ground, yeah. uh, via forced air input with humid, cool air, so it doesn't really know the difference for all intensive purposes. Yep. So here uh, is really where the uh, the bulk of the quote unquote malting is happening. And so what we're doing when we are malting is we are modifying that cereal grain endosperm from a previously hard, dense, hard to digest, somewhat unusable ingredient, if you will, to a extractable, friable, so uh, a crushable and extractable form. Mm -hmm. And so as we malt in here, as it germinates, it's going to use that water uh, to provide a pathway for the enzymes that the grain is creating. So, uh, in a given grain kernel, it's about 75% starchy endosperm. That is essentially the food backpack or food reserve of that seed while it is in the ground, growing that inch and a half in the soil before it reaches sunlight. Um, We are modifying that just the way the plant would. If it uh, were, it would, if it were in the field, it'd be breaking down that starchy endosperm, it would release enzymes that break down the protein and the cell walls and these other gums or pentosins and beta-glucans um, to make those starches exposed and available. And then we have starch-degrading enzymes called uh, amylolytic enzymes that convert that starch into sugar. Typically in the field, they, that those enzymes would break that starch into sugar to feed the embryo, to grow a new plant, it reaches sunlight, photosynthesis takes over, we've got the next generation of plants. We're doing the exact same thing in here, uh, allowing those enzymes to work and break down that really complex carbohydrate known as the endosperm um, so that we can make those starches exposed and available to enzymes when they are reawoken in the malt house, in the brew house later on. Uh, So we want to shut this process down after about four or five days, depending on what we are trying to make, because we want to modify the inside of that kernel. We want to expose those starch granules, but we don't want to use the vast, vast majority. There's There's two sizes of starch granules in an endosperm. There's the small starch granules and there's large starch granules. We are typically using up most of the small starch granules during germination they're the easiest ones to uh, expose and then some of the enzymes begin to convert those that's we need some of those those small starch granules to create simple sugars for the maillard reaction in the kiln which creates color and flavor and aroma that we all want but we want to leave behind the large starch granules for the brewer and so in order to ensure we leave those behind, we will monitor the modification of this kernel and then shut it down via kilning after about four or five days, like I said. And so if we were to allow that to continue, we would, for all intents and purposes, be growing grass in here and it would become a sod farm, quite, quite literally. Um, and so we, that, that is the part of, of beginning germination and then terminating it while you've created all of these enzymes, but you have not led them to begin to break the entire kernel down.
1: So this is so perfect talking to you today because in my tastings, I've always talked about this malting process where you wanna soak the grain, you want it to start germinating, you want it to release those sugars so that you can access those to turn those into alcohol. And you're clarifying for me today that it's, Enzymes that you're creating, and you're sta- you're saving those starches to be broken down into sugars, to then be turned into alcohol. So those enzymes that we keep hearing about um, in in American production, right? Where corn's not doing all the heavy lifting by itself and it needs that presence of malted barley or those enzymes. Now I understand why malted barley is used interchangeably with the enzymes. That's fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you.
2: You bet. And and I think it's, you know, it can be a somewhat misnomer to say that in the malt house we are creating sugar. We are, in fact, not... If we were creating sugar, we'd have nothing to sell and therefore would fail. Uh, And so... In fact, creating sugar is something we do not want to do so that we have something to sell to the brewer. But we, by creating some of that flavor and aroma, we do need a little bit of that, those small starch granules to convert to sugars. As we break down the protein in these these endosperms uh, of all five bazillion of these kernels, um, we will create um, like simple amino acids. The combination of amino acid and simple sugar in the kiln leads to a very robust Maillard reaction, and so that we've added heat, and so now this is where we get those, you know, nutty or bready or you know, toast or bread crust, um, where we get those flavor attributes because we are using the components that we've created during malting and applying heat, um, and that's where we. Start to really differentiate between the different malt types, and that's why we have. I mean, I believe our product list is touching on like thirty products or so right now. So, um, and we're all the, all of those have a different flavor attribute via the grain or how we treated them in the kiln, based on how they were germinated. Perfect,
1: perfect. So, so kiln, I'm I'm ready for to the dope. kiln.
2: Yeah. All right. Um, So it's advantageous in that we have a small batch of what we term our English pale or pale ale malt in the kiln here. So, uh, you know, initially opening the door here, this smells like a beautiful bowl of grape nuts. Um, Mm -hmm. It is, uh, this is what we would referred to as a pale ale malt, so it's, you know, UK-inspired, slightly higher in the kiln curing process, where we would typically reach 180 for pills or 185 for pale uh, at the end of kilning. We're getting up to close to 200 degrees on this this particular product, and that creates that slight nuttiness and depth that um, is phenomenal for any English ale style, but it's also great for very, just generally malt forward beers, whether that's stout or porter or some particularly something like a barley wine um, where you really want to show the, the malt profile. This really has a great base uh, with which to, to start.
1: Could you talk to us a little bit about the Lovibon scale and the value of that? and I'm, you know, we're gonna bring Amanda into this conversation in just a minute here, but I'm thinking about our friends at Westland and, and they have this five malt and obviously we talk about chocolate malts going in there, but we also talk about pale malts having a place there. Now that you've kind of cracked that nut for me on securing enzymes and sending sugar off to the brewer or the distiller, What's the value of light and dark malts? Can you help me better understand that, please?
2: We could take a lot of different paths here. Um, I, I think at the at the base of it all, there's one undeniable rule in that uh, you cannot have low color, high flavor malt. So color is delivers flavor and vice and vice versa so you cannot have an english pale malt like this which is at about three to three and a half lovabond you cannot create these flavors and have the color of this malt be less than two lovabond which your typical american two-row brewer's malt or you know a pilsner or pale brewer's malt would be and so in order to create color and create flavor you need to Um, you need to sacrifice a low color spec to, in order to create flavor. Um, so that's important. Number one. So as the flavor profile increases, as does the color, uh, we have malts that get up to, you know, our black malts are 550 Lovabond, right? They're essentially nature's food coloring (laughs) at that point. But, um, you can oftentimes determine the flavor impact of a, that a given malt will deliver, uh, loosely based on its color, or you can you you be able to see what intensity of that flavor would be uh, in light of the color. I mean, you can have a Vienna malt, for instance, that's you know all different sorts of colors, from three lovabon to maybe six lovabond in a high scale i would say the they can all be vienna's but the six bond vienna is probably a little bit more intense than a low color vienna like a three bond vienna you know in typical uh european malting once you get up to the five six range you're more into the munich malts um, so you can loosely just looking at color determine what kind of um, punch that given malt is going to pack that said, the reason base malts are particularly low color is because we need to keep the kilning regimen at a low enough temperature to preserve enzymes. You know, low color malts are typically enzymatic still, so they're the base malts, they're carrying the conversion in the mash, they're doing most of the, convertible, the conversion work. Uh, character malts, as you get up in color, you are typically losing enzyme potential and the enzyme package. So like I said, you have to give up a low color spec to create flavor. You also are sacrificing enzymatic package as you go up in color. And so that is why, for instance, most beers are not produced with a hundred percent Munich malt. Munich malt, theoretically speaking, is enzymatic and can carry itself. It can if it can carry itself, it can not carry anything in addition to it. Um, so, if you were to be malting with, you know, rolled oats or some other raw raw wheat or some other raw grain adjunct, you would need enzymes from some other source other than that Munich malt to convert those starches because it doesn't have enough after it converts itself to convert anything else. Now, you a low color pills or pale malt those have very robust enzyme packages because we have kept the heat in the kiln low. Enzymes are temperature dependent. And so some enzymes have higher heat stability, some have lower. Alpha amylase has a one of the highest heat stability temperature levels, whereas beta amylase is quite a bit lower. And so as you increase the kiln curing temperature to create color and flavor you're inherently denaturing enzymes while you do that and so it's a give and take that is why you can't have a very highly enzymatic brown malt it doesn't the reason the brown malts were enzymatic back in the day is because part of it burned and the other part didn't when you blend it together it's brown Uh, and so Trying to recreate <clears throat> enzymatic brown malts is, you know, it's it's a it's an exercise in futility, in that you uh, can most likely light something on fire in in the in the in the process. So you're
1: really crisping up my understanding here. So sincere thanks to you, Jeff. So. I thought, and obviously we go back to the the example of Signet on this one, when Glen did the high chocolate malt, single malt. So the colour is coming from the caramelising of the sugars that are in the barley. It, this is brilliant. We're sharing one mic today for no real reason, but Jeff is looking at me ponderously here, like Jason is saying a lot of wrong things here. No, no, <laughs> no, you're right. Okay. That's all okay that was all correct okay okay I'm gonna keep talking then and see if I can go wrong at some point so so you've got the caramelizing of the sugars is creating the color but but my I think slightly mistaken understanding from before was those darker grains were not bringing as much sugar to the process for the distiller but in understanding you today it's Fewer enzymes are making their way to the distiller, and those enzymes are not having the same effect on the sugars that are part of a mash bill, for want of a better term. Is it? Am I right? Wrong? There is that getting crisp?
2: I, I think you're 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 pretty close. I mean, with, with very dark malts, so let's say there's there's really two classes of color high color we'll call them character malts they are kiln produced high color malts like a vienna or munich's you can get munich's that start to get quite quite dark some biscuit malts are produced in the kiln Uh, caramel malts can be produced in the kiln and then we have roaster Ah. produced or dry roasting Ah. of grains where for instance we produce our biscuit in the drum roaster but at very low temperatures that we could that we could do it in the kiln uh, kilns are not very homogenous, whereas a drum roaster is, and so that's why we do a, a, a biscuit.
1: So, so I've been using kiln as a catch all term for all grain getting its color from that one spot. So kiln is doing one thing, roaster is doing another. That's correct. brilliant.
2: Correct, correct. And so, in, and depending on where they're produced, whether in the kiln or in the drum roaster, those are different methods of creating color in the in the kiln you are relying on maillard reactions to that maillard browning to create those colors that's typically why you're a bit limited in what you can create in a kiln that is not a caramel malt you're typically getting up to you know nine or ten maybe 15 low I mean, we have a munich 15 for instance um that is kiln produced um but beyond that You're typically then looking at a drum roaster to create the significantly darker colors, like brown malts, chocolate malts, uh, and obviously, you know, black malts for for certain. Now, with the drum roaster, you know, chocolate malts, for instance, they can still deliver, you know, 75% extract because you haven't you've denatured all the enzymes far and long ago. However, the starches are still there that could theoretically be extracted in the mash and then converted by the enzymatic package delivered by the ba- the lighter base malts. Uh, typically, ba- you know, dark malt extract is not s- significant because you're using those malts in such low percentages in the grist. And so, yes, while you should count them in your recipe formulation, because it exists, and I think, Many folks just kind of write those off. Um, they are countable. You can, you can count those malts as part of your brew house efficiency. It's just going to be a very, very small percentage of that, if that extraction based on the fact that you're probably in single, low, single digit percentages of usage in your grist, right? So um, those starches are still theoretically convertible. They're just not convertible by that particular malt type because those enzymes are gone that's where we're relying on base malt enzymes to do the work to convert itself plus whatever else is in the which is in the and we can get in that and that's when we can get into this with with you know raw like grain distilling like bourbon makers for instance um and why those malts need to be very very highly enzymatic because they're converting starches from predominantly raw grain mash bill and so that little bit of malted barley needs to be very, very, very high in enzymes because it's producing you know, roughly 85% raw grain, which there's, those enzymes really are not present. There may be a little bit that are inherently present in grain, but most of them are created during malting. Yeah,
1: The word that always follows us around the, the distilling world is yield. And so in thinking about going around a Scottish distillery and we talk about yield, it's, you know, how much alcohol are you getting from that you know ton of barley? And my mind is always thinking how much sugar was in that barley that you were able to convert to alcohol. And so to hear this be enzymatic today is is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely fascinating. And it's really changing the way I'm thinking about previous conversations that I've had with distillers.
2: Yeah. And yield in the distilling world is, comes from two things. One, the protein content. So single malt whiskey producers love very low protein barley because you have less protein offsetting the starch content of that endosperm. You don't need an incredibly high enzyme package when it's all malt mashed. When you're just your entire mash bill is is a single, probably a single or maybe two types of malts. Um, you don't need this peel the paint off the wall enzyme package, right? <laughs> and so, eight, you know, an eight or maybe seven and a half or eight percent protein barley, which in a you know, and a malt house would really yield a pretty low enzyme package. That's good enough for a malt, a all malt distiller, but they're getting a lot more starch availability because that protein is lower. So there's more starch filling out that endosperm than there is protein. And then the second piece would be test weight. So this is why looking at a given grain harvest, you know, barley, a bushel of barley is 48 pounds you want to have barley that's got a good test weight to it because that means it's plump, that kernel really filled out well during the later stages of, um, of growing in the field and has produced a lot of a, a big capsule known as the endosperm of, of available starches. Now, if you were to pour a ton of nitrogen on that field, in order to get this really high test weight, you're also gonna have really high protein, which is stealing your away from your percentage of starch. So if you can get a really high test weight plump barley with low, low protein for distilling, your yields are going to be ideal because that's a huge capsule kernel of starch, not a lot of protein that's, that's taking that starch away or offsetting that starch. Um, and you're able to get much more extractable starch out of a given kernel of barley. You, need to, you use less and get more, hence good yields. Wow. Yeah.
1: I'm thinking, just the way you're describing that and the way I'm watching your hand gestures, I'm thinking of the potential for a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or Sylvester Stallone grain that's pumped up on protein and prompt, pumped up on starch, and is that a bad thing?
2: Uh, so, I mean, here, here's, a, here's a good, uh, I mean, the picture of me looking like Sylvester Stallone or uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is, is terrifying. But um, so I, let's flip this thing on its head, though, and move to grain distilling. So bourbon, again, you're using... small amount of malted barley, which is really a background singer in the entire show known as bourbon production. You're using a small bit of that malted barley, but it's got to have enough enzymes to convert all of that other raw grain adjuncts. In order to get a very high enzyme package, you actually need barley that's very high in protein because enzymes are proteins. So enzymes are proteins so that If you have too low of a protein content in grain, that's why your enzyme package is going to be low. If you need a very high enzyme package, you need high protein. It also germinates warmer for longer and is meant, you know, that that grain distiller's malt is produced for one reason and one reason only, and that's to provide very high DP or diastatic power and very high alpha amylase. What it tastes like is somewhat secondary um, and they will give up because they're not worried about the yield of that particular input because they're getting all of their yield from the corn or the raw wheat or the raw rye. We can use up some of those sugars during, during um, germination to drive that embryo to continue to grow and as it's growing it's re- continuing to release enzymes that's how we can drive that dp and that alpha amylase up and so bourbon distillers high protein barley high enzymatic barley malts single malt whiskey producers low protein low enzymes high yield
1: oh, perfection perfection oh my gosh um i want to bring in amanda beckwith at this point where You've, you've done such a brilliant job, Jeff, of balancing between the bourbon producer and the single malt producer. Now, Amanda, the reason we're standing here today is because of your introduction to Jeff and to Murphy & Rood uh, as a maltster. So for you, and I know, you know, I always talk about you being in the distilling business, and I really just mean that for the distillery work that you do. So the question becomes... What are you looking for when you pick up the phone and you call Jeff and, and you're gonna place an order for something?
3: Well, the exciting thing with working with Jeff and the whole Murphy & Rood team is the the level of quality that they give and the sense of place they deliver, too, because at Virginia Distillery Company, we're all about the sense of place. And so we learned quickly back in the early years, 2015, 2016, 2017, we're not really farmers. But every bit of barley that we've grown on site has gone through Murphy & Rood through their malting process and is currently distilled and is aging in a variety of our casks. And And so through that process, through this relationship, they delivered an incredible quality for us and consistency. And so he was spot on everything that Jeff was saying about the low protein, what we're looking for. He definitely understood. And so for us, now I have this whiskey 100% from our site, even the barley itself, aging in first fill bourbon barrels, in different sherry casks, in our cuvee wine casks. And it's been really fun throughout the past few years to pull samples and start to see and look for differences between the barley that we grew and that he took care of here at Murphy & Rood versus, you know, barley that we've got from other parts of the United States and even Southern Canada.
1: And so that's been you contracting a farmer to grow that for you. So are you As we've been talking about here this morning, what are you finding in climate, in conditions, in moist growing conditions versus dry growing conditions? How does that then affect the conversation that you're having with Jeff?
3: Well, one of the first things we learned was just how high the nitrogen levels in Virginia soil are. And we weren't expecting to have to deal with that to the extent that we were. And there were other things like we didn't know about rot or things that could start to become a problem. We didn't want to use pesticides. So we had a lot of questions at first. We're no longer growing barley on site and we work with farmers in other areas. Um, but I am not opposed to maybe one day playing a ground a bit more with our own fields or places nearby. So that's still a really exciting thing. Right now, what I'm focused on is, the whiskey that's currently aging and I think the biggest win for us with that barley in particular is as our barrels are interacting with the whiskey inside it, we are seeing a bit of uh, a contrast between the distillate made from barley in other areas of North America. And so I'm still waiting. I want to hit a certain age I have in my head. I just want to see, you know, but every year as in plink samples, there is a variance. You can definitely detect more malty character coming through. An example um, for the whiskey aged in the first fill bourbon barrel. And that's really exciting. So we're still experimenting and I'm still learning, but I'm loving it.
1: <laughs> so for you, Jeff, when a distiller comes to you and they're talking about what they would like to go into barrel, well, first of all, are you having conversations about kind of somewhat, uh, Amanda's giving me a, mm, I'm not sure where Jason's trying to take this, but are you having flavor driven conversations with your maltster?
3: I think for us, we were more concerned with enzymatic action. We knew that we wanted the pale malts. We knew that we were going to be very traditional because where we get to be untraditional and where I get to play is the barrels. So having that quality and that consistency was the the groundwork that we needed. And so that's what we were provided.
1: Yeah, perfect, perfect. So for you, Jeff, then in supplying a distiller, one who is just down the road, I think we might be about 30 minutes from this doorstep to to your doorstep, Amanda. What are you then looking to supply or what types of conversations are you having with that distiller? I can't help but think for myself, I'm looking at flavor, you know, I'm looking at yield. I'm looking at what's going to go into the barrel. Are you talking some distillers off ledges? Are you saying, well, that's all to the good, but make sure you're thinking about this first and foremost. What kind of balance are you trying to create
2: there? That's a good, complex question. I mean, I think <clears throat> from a, from the get-go, um, providing the correct malt product for what they're trying to make is, is a pretty automatic baseline. I mean, we would not be, Providing um, grain distillers' malt to uh, Virginia Distillery or Spirit Lab Distilling uh, here locally in Charlottesville um, because that's not what their their product does not call for that type of of malt product. Um, I think what we're noticing more is this evolution of the use of specialty malts in distilling, which (laughs) I. I distinctly remember uh, bringing up, you know, the use of, of a chocolate malt to a, a distiller, and him very quickly saying, "Well, I don't think that would make very good whiskey." Um, now, whether that would is because he thought I was suggesting they use all chocolate malt, which would be a terrible <laughs> idea, um, or the fact that it's just very new and and radical and um, almost like experimental. Uh, I think there's a, a slow trickle and just like brewing, I think distilling it's a very peer driven industry. And so oftentimes folks will wait for somebody else to stub their toe so they don't have to perhaps. Um, and so that can sometimes add to the, the the conversion or the lead conversion time and getting some of these folks to, to really uh, embrace A crazy idea like that Um, but it also has a lot to do with what kind of ethos that particular distillery has whether it's already established and they have a very focused vision and uh, intentional plan for their distillery and then there's others that are for all intents and purposes winging it uh, and are going to kind of evolve as time and it takes them through their 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 time, right? So, um, I think in the end, you have to you have to know your audience, right? And and really know who you're talking to and what they're trying to achieve. Um, I know that uh, even within the base malt realm, you can still get a little crazy, right? Like, but. but Spirit, Ivar at Spear Lab uses all of our English Pale as his base for his single malt whiskey, um, and he absolutely loves it. Whereas, I could theoretically have just automatically proposed our Pale Malt to him because that would be the uh, kind of like the low bar of introduction to our, our our product catalog, and would be the most obvious. Except you can start to add flavorful character into your malt bill by not really going way outside the boundary here right so i mean we're talking like a half maybe a full bond difference in color it's still very enzymatic it just has a different flavor potential and so if you're you you look at the amount of time that they're aging, are they aging in different, are they selecting all these different casks, which VDC does a lot? um, Or are they really keeping the maturation side simple and are gonna rely more on the malt inputs to deliver a flavor component? So I think all of those, talking to a distiller about what their existence is and Um, What their intentions are in the aging process and whether they want to remain fairly traditional or Get a little weird. um, I think all goes into the conversation of what you end up suggesting to them Uh,
1: Perfect Uh, We've had a lovely conversation up to this point. We're gonna get controversial (laughs) we're, we're <laughs> we have, we've asked this question of farmers, we've asked this question of distillers, we've asked this question of blenders, and now we're going to ask this question on the record with a maltster. What is your understanding of terroir when it comes to grain and specifically distilling? And you're welcome to compare and contrast that to brewing if you wish, but my question is specifically for distilling. Do you think there is such a thing as terroir in a distilled spirit? Given your understanding of grain, barley, malting, etc., you ready for this?
2: I'm totally ready for it. You don't scare me. Uh, so. Uh, uh, I mean it's undeniable it's an undeniable fact that terroir is a thing but it's subjective so whether a consumer is able to peel away the layers and you know as a as a sommelier would be able to select wine and maker and vintage off of you know just smelling the wine for instance that would be pretty difficult in a distilled spirit to really pick up that level of of terroir. Um, That being said, it is an agricultural product that is grown in the ground. And the ground is different depending on where you live. So there really is not much of a debate whether the land, the agricultural product grows in would have an impact on its flavor profile. Um, I mean, we have a very dynamic array of soil here from, you know, the very sandy loamy soils that are bay influenced out, um, you know, in the Northern Neck and in the Peninsula region to uh, very nutrient rich, but poor draining clay soils um, to the rich like Southern Piedmont um, soils here. And so to suggest that um, that only would be perceivable in wine is crazy town, except for the fact that um, even outside of beer, uh, distilled spirits are, you know, as singular as they can sometimes get, as opposed to beer, it's very hard to pull together a terroir influence when you have, you know, a number of hopping additions going on plus the ester profiles of yeast during fermentation. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And to be able to peel out terroir of a particular grain variety grown here would be incredibly difficult. Um, that does not mean it doesn't exist. It's whether we can pick up on it, right? So I think the, um, the question really is, can people pick up on terroir in these products? In distilled spirits, absolutely and totally. Uh, you would probably have to do it um, very purposefully, side by side. It's very similar <clears throat> maturation um, components and times and applications. Um, whereas wine is, because it is such a simple end product, there's, it doesn't have a lot of, aside from any blending, it it doesn't have all of these other flavor inputs, it's much more discernible. Um, and so I absolutely think you could introduce terroir into into distilled spirits. It just depends on how much you wanna prove it, r- really. I mean, you could you could produce, you would have to look at molsters like myself that are single origin, for instance, to know that a given batch is a given variety from a given lot of grain from a given farm. As opposed to larger, you know, multinational malting companies that blend post malting, and that stuff gets really non homogenous traceability-wise. Um, but then, you know, applying different varieties of maybe a, a, of two different regions to, with the same distillation and maturation process, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to say the differences are the grain ingredients.
1: And I think that's where we're coming down on this as we're asking more people. It's it's funny, in one way, I feel that like we're getting people on the record answering a question that they never asked, uh, where we've kind of taken on this terroir just because it's really on the outskirts of whiskey conversation and whiskey enjoyment. I think we're just trying to head people off at the pass. But what we are really starting to pick up on here is much closer to Dave Broom's really latest book, A Sense of Place, which is just that, a sense of place. It's people, it's physical structures, it's relationships, it's how do you go about interacting with all of that going on and how do you make a product? So VDC means something given the relationships, the partnerships, the farmers, but can you taste that in the final product? Yeah. What does it taste like? It tastes like love. Right? It tastes like community. It tastes like camaraderie. Can you test that? Probably not, right? A mass spectrometer is not going to pull those up. Um. All right. couple more just quick things and, and we'll get out of here. Uh, Amanda, with you standing uh, right beside me here, is there anything you've wanted to ask Jeff that you have not and when we put a microphone in his face he will be legally bound to answer said question do you um, do you feel that you can handle that type of power oh yeah
3: I think so. <laughs> well, one of my favorite conversations that I've already had with Jeff was a couple years ago. We got geeky about pH levels. I think you remember that we were standing over the mash tun and Dustin and Brian and I were just grilling you with questions. So I already know Jeff is great with anything I throw at him. Um, but yeah, if you could just say, I want to start partnering with someone to create a type of whiskey that like maybe a mash bill that I haven't seen yet, what would your dream mash bill be?
2: it's a good one. Um, I would probably keep it fairly simple. Uh, I know that's, that's not the answer that, um, most people were probably hoping for, but I think there is beauty and simplicity with a lot of this stuff. And I think it allows individual ingredients to, to show their muster in all of it. And and allows you to really see what's going on i mean i've it's been really hard for me and we're going to detract out of like the whiskey world here but to really embrace the this hazy ipa movement in the in the beer world because it's so busy that i can't keep it all straight i mean it's very elementary at its core um but that is what they're beautifully done beers and they they deliver all of the promises that they say, but um, when you list four or five different hops that are used at all of these different times during hop addition that inherently change what that hop is going to express, whether it's added earlier or later, um, I have no idea which one came from what and why. Um, And to me it just becomes that a single hop variety could theoretically deliver 10 different flavor or aroma attributes, whereas I love the belief that, you know, a single ingredient has this, this picture that it paints. Um, and it allowing it to paint its picture without adding all of this other stuff to try to make it taste like um, something we're familiar with, I think is what the beauty and the art of particularly distilling is, is that you can allow these ingredients to you know, more or less show you the way.
1: I'm so glad you start bringing up hops there, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you before we get out of here is, we've seen the battle with hoppier and hoppier beers, and we've seen the battle with peatier and peatier whiskeys. Do you foresee a potential battle where we see... I'm thinking about the chocolate malts, those heavy malts, where right now they're playing a small part and they're bringing their flavor to the table. But anything that brings a little bit of strong flavor, I feel like some people want to ramp it up. Is there a potential for us to go that way in distilling?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I think that is... um more about embracing the consumer Uh, unfortunately we have no control over what the consumer wants I mean we have breweries producing all sorts of products that are not beer anymore because they're responding to the consumer it's not a sellout thing or trendy I mean trends are trendy because the consumer makes them trendy Um, or a brewer or a distillery delivers something that somebody didn't know that they wanted and creates their own little trend there. But um, I think the diversity of distilled products is going to go wild when specialty malts are embraced, whether those are crystal malts or um, Drum-roasted darker malts, or using Vienna's and Munich's, and, and you know maybe slightly higher grist percentages, um, to then see how those play with wood and time. Um, I think we're still going to see some just wildly crazy distilled spirits, but it's going to make the distilled spirits world much more dynamic and um, multi-dimensional as opposed to, um, you know, breaking away from this long, hard tradition. I mean, I think we all need a little fun in our lives. And so (laughs) this is where I think particularly the whiskey world can, can, you know, maybe unbutton its shirt a little bit and get um, get a little wild and, and see what the potential is out there for making really you know artful and beautiful spirits with just non-traditional malt bills for, for all intents and purposes.
1: That sounds like the perfect message to get us out of here on. I'm going to say, Amanda, thanks ever so much for making this collaboration work. I, uh, I appreciate you. Oh, happy to. And Jeff, thanks ever so much for making time for us on a Monday morning and just giving us an excellent tour of the facility and answering all of our questions, even our most controversial.
2: (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.
1: Until next time, my friend. Cheers. Jason, thanks
0: again for taking the helm. And <laughs> well, and, and, you know you're you're out and about, and, and we've done this before where we're doing some solo interviews, and I'll have one coming up soon ish. Emphasis on the word ish. Um, but but <laughs> one of the things that that really struck me about this conversation is in talking about, not necessarily the malting process. But more in the 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 roasting process of these malts, where you brought up the the Lavibon system with Jack. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah. and he said something that we always say the contrary to at least when it comes to distilled spirits, where we say. Color doesn't equal flavor. Don't pay attention to the color because it's going to lie to you. And he says quite the opposite, right? The the darker the color, the more flavor, or the difference in flavor, and that really it struck me that on the malt itself, that be that becomes true. But then you take that that malt and you put it through the various processes of right. Right. Uh, you know, fermentation, distillation and maturation and, and all of that goes out the window. But how interesting, maybe not all of it, but a portion of it goes out the window. But how interesting that that really is where flavor comes from for a brewing perspective.
1: Exactly. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say here in my intro to the interview there. I talked about Jeff's work With breweries Mm. And yeah, in in beer brewing You put dark malts in there You get a darker beer Think of a brown ale Think of a porter Think of a stout Right, you're using Mm -hmm. dark grains in there No matter what you put into your mash bill As a distiller You're distilling a crystal clear liquid
0: Yeah, yeah
1: Regardless Right, And instead you're looking for, okay, what, what flavour is being left over, as, as you were alluding to just a second ago, mm-hmm. right? What does that small percentage of chocolate malt deliver? You know, classic mm-hmm. Westland, yeah, right? The five yeah. malt mash bill with the chocolate malt going on in there. One of the aspects for me was in talking about, again, the one scale and darker malts. And him making this clear delineation between what's happening in the kiln and what's happening in the roaster.
2: Mm, and mm-hmm. and,
1: suddenly, and I'm, I'm standing there, I'm like, shit. Like I've, <laughs> I've been in whiskey circles for, for 20 plus years, and I'm and the really dark malts get roasted. They don't just stay in the kiln yeah, they longer. Get yeah. They get roasted in a separate vessel. I'm like, mm-hmm. This is why we do this. This is why we still (laughs) go out. This is why we're still looking to have conversations with people, still looking to learn, right? That other great point that he raised about enzymes, right? Mm -hmm. You're looking for grain that have a vast number of enzymes that allow the fermentation, the distillation, right? He's talking proteins and the role of proteins in the grain here, right? We've only ever talked sugar, only Right? Correct. Yeah. Right? And it and he was like, not really. You're you're missing a part of the chain. Right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things when you're learning about this going through distilleries, distilleries want to talk about distillate and really they want to talk mm. about mature product. Right. They're not really slowing it down to talk about the raw ingredient that gets liver delivered yeah. X number of times a week. So many tons come in the door, right? They're not really getting into the nitty gritty of that. That nitty gritty is Jeff's business.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. There, there was there was something else too, and something you mentioned just now reminded me of it, uh, or or I think it's just this general misunderstanding or maybe not a misunderstanding, but understanding things in a different way. So when- Or more more thoroughly, I would say, right? For that, the point that I'm going to bring up was a question you asked him toward the end, which was specifically with terroir and and does the idea of terroir (laughs) exist? And his point was, well, it's from the ground, so it definitely exists. However, he made a point that, I don't know, I've, I've heard winemakers say to the contrary, and I can't argue on either side. You know, he, he felt as if for distillation, if I understood the correct the, the conversation properly, that for distillation, that you can most definitely get a feel of where that grain came from, but that in wine he felt it could be less so because wine offers up simpler flavors than what a grain could do through mm. fermentation and distillation now again maybe i misunderstood his comment but but i found it interesting when you know when i go to my local wine shop and i get wine experts come in and they talks they talk about the The nutrients in the soil they talk about how the wind affects that particular side of the mountain or hill that the grapes mm-hmm, happen mm-hmm, to be growing mm-hmm. on, and you know all of these things that are tied specifically to that sense of place, you know it, the way I always thought about terroir as it as it pertains to alcoholic beverages was that and, that, and this is just my thinking, but when it comes to whiskey that's been peated, you can get a sense of the terroir that the, that's, the peat is tied to. Is it Isla peat? Is it Highland peat? Is it Washington State peat? Um, but because of the distillation process and maturation process, the ability to understand other terroir-driven flavors becomes masked, mm-hmm. whereas through a beer or a wine, it's, it's less so because it's going through less processes. That's how I've always understood it, and so I'm putting that out there now. To your, to your memory during the course of the conversation, is that how you understood his position?
1: not entirely okay like there's definitely this aspect you know he's working with enough agricultural partners where the field makes a difference right the yeah. slope on the field the direction that it faces yeah makes a difference and so i, I took jeff to be making two points okay so number one is Barley grows in a particular way. Grain grows in a particular way. It, th- and that to my ear echoes what we heard from David Thompson at Spirit of Yorkshire mm-hmm. and from the OnMac sisters who are growing out in Colorado. Yeah. Right? There are there are there are realities to this. In a field, weather systems, rain, rivers, right? Mm. Like it's not just this singular product that we think of being grown in Eastern England, Eastern Scotland, Ukraine, right? Other parts of Europe, right? It's not just that mass commodity that can be churned out continually without taking a range of factors into mind. Mm. So I think to that point, Jeff says... Is there such a thing as terroir? I I firmly believe there is. Now, as that works its way through the various processes, where do we end up? And, And I think his point was, when it comes to alcohol, is there a sense of terroir in that glass? Let's say yes. Let's assume yes. Can we access it? Not necessarily
0: yeah yeah and listen i I think that there are some key points to where it becomes quite obvious, specifically in distilled spirits and and I think of rye whiskey, right there's something so very singular about what Alberta rye tastes like compared yeah. right to like a like a whistle pig ten or You know, insert a Canadian rye here that's using Alberta rye. Compare that to a rye made at MGP, you know, which has its own particular flavor. Compare that to Old Forester's rye, right? You've got, in that case, I don't know if it's necessarily terroir or if it's the type of grain, the type of rye grain, because there are different varieties, or a combination of the two but it's definitely there are definitely clear differences despite the process being the same. Mhm.
1: Mhm.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and I think and I think that's absolutely yeah. to a Maltster's yeah. point. Yeah. And and that's what that's what I really liked and and, and I I encouraged him to get technical in the interview as mm. well. And I, you know, I think his interview benefits from a second and third listen as well. Mm-hmm. But there's this talk of, you know, how moist is the grain when it comes to the maltster, right? That's going to depend on what was the rainfall like while yeah. it was growing? What yeah. was the rainfall like before it was harvested, mm-hmm. right? And when that grain comes in with a particular percentage of moisture, that affects how he then works it. Within the malting house And you you can't just bend nature To one industrial practice And we did have a little bit of a conversation About how some other places Some other larger industrial compounds (laughs) Might or facilities, right? Might make it bend Mm -hmm. And he's busy saying, you know My volume is such that I'm able to do this what I perceive to be the right way, right? Which is listening to the grain, responding yeah. to the needs of the grain, right? It's like it's like listening to, to Matt Hoffman, right? Yes, there are industrial needs in place. Is that something we need to use in this instance at Westland? Mm-hmm. Is this something that we need in the distillation industry? What are our yields? What are our volumes? What are our outputs? What are our values? That's you know, a churning yeah. you know, cloud of questions, right? Where where do you join the dots on those and what do you get as a result of answering those types of questions?
0: Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you do what you want to do grow your business in a smart way without selling your soul or compromising the way in which you work just to meet demand, perceived demand. Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: one one final point, and then we, we can move along here, but I had a conversation with Jeff and Amanda over lunch that was then echoed in an interview I conducted with Thad Vogler in San Francisco mm-hmm. while I was out traveling about. Um, a fantastic conversation with Thad, and I. I tried not to fanboy too hard, hmm. but it's actually it's it's all kind of stemming from a comment that Oliver children, Ollie Chilton, of Elixir, made to me a, a while back, and and I, I'm hearing this being echoed by the types of producers that we talk to, and and you know how people value you know their little space within this industry, hmm. but the conversation revolves around if you're not growing you're failing and and in talking to Jeff he's he's you know you know continually looking for investment because there's growth to be had and they're you know they're they're not outmatching demand right now and so how do you meet greater demand and and just to your point a second ago he's asking himself that question is growth the best thing for this business yeah, yeah. and the values of this business and i i love that he's having that conversation mostly with himself potentially <laughs> with some investors but uh-huh. but he, he's he's asking that question right yes we can grow yes we can increase the number of relationships we have but do we want to yeah. does that fit our ethos and i I love hearing that. I absolutely mm, love hearing yeah. that ongoing conversation yeah. about where, where can you be? And just as a very quick preview, Thad makes a comment of you could have, you could be a, a, a restaurant owner in Japan who has 20 seats in, in their restaurant mm-hmm. and they work those 20 seats for 40 years. Yeah, and And there's a, beauty to that and there's a a huge success to that and there's no cultural mindset there of well I got to get 40 seats and then I've got (laughs) to open a second (laughs) place and then I've got to open a third place in a different part of Japan it's I've got 20 seats and I ran 20 seats for 40 years yeah (laughs) right yeah it's a very different mindset and so to hear some of these you know, American producers, you know, American participants in this industry, trying to work out the answer to that puzzle is is really wonderful and really edifying. So I'm really glad Jeff had brought it up. Really glad Thad brings it up. Ollie, of course, brought it up previously. We'll swing back to him in a future episode at, at some point. Mm-hmm. Ask him his own question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um yeah, it's a great, great thing to be pondering and what it means for the ethos of one's business.
0: Yeah, for sure. So moving on, are we okay to move on, Jason? 100%. We're okay to move on. Do we have... Any news that we need to be sharing?
1: I did a couple of tastings while I was on the road and the copperworks absolutely killed, which was brilliant. The number of people, unprompted, I hasten to add, Hmm. who compared our copperworks to the Chicago Jubilee that that I have talked about previously, I I didn't lead the witness in my tastings, Hmm. but some people there had said... Do you remember the Chicago Jubilee bottling, the first one you did there? And I said, oh, hell yeah, do I? And it's got those kind of big orangey notes and hop notes and hop ah, oil and a bit of citrus and okay. a bit of spice. Yeah, yeah, people people getting that in the Copperworks was really exciting. Oh,
0: that's that's great I, to hear. You didn't lead the witness at all? I did not. Wow, I was a very
1: good one. Because, because I always want to know is anybody getting what I'm getting here? And if you yeah. lead the witness, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. But if you just listen to them and allow them to raise it, it's like, ah, oh, yes, I agree. That's exactly what I've been finding. Wonderful. <laughs> so, so that was great. Um, I popped the cork on our Wolf Island take two. Uh, okay. And that was very well received as well. It's so interesting once again, we're hearing people say, hey, I loved the first one. I like the second one even more than the first one. And I just don't know if people like, do, are people saying that because they clearly remember the first one? Do people like the newer thing better than the older thing in, in other circumstances? The, yeah. the model for the, for the mix is identical to the first one. It's five unpeated casks and one peated cask.
0: Yeah, see I, I think I think we've got the model right. I think I think what we're doing to create this is, is spot on and and allows for natural because it's such a small batch of just six casks. it allows for natural variants to, to really pop out while always keeping an eye on on, on where the heart of that spirit is it's not mm-hmm. a situation where a band has a second album and decides to change <laughs> their sound you know like yeah. they're not they went changing full the sound from the in- rock. yeah the, the instruments are the same <laughs> like every you know and the songs are the same they're just playing it in, in a different way and and i think I think if we stay down that path, then we could have something that's—I wouldn't say reliable because that's not—that's not the point of it, right? The point isn't to be. Don't say
1: consistent. but Don't say consistent.
0: But, but incredibly fun to follow, much like um, Aberlour Abunah or mm-hmm, Glenallachie mm-hmm. Tenure Cast Strength or Tamdu Batch Strength where you're always following that next batch. You know the first one was great. You know the next one's going to be great. What are the differences going to be, right? Kilholman's annual release of Loch Gorm. Kilholman's annual release of Loch (laughs) (laughs) Gorm.
1: I I refuse to admit we make intermittent references to (laughs) Kilholman. I still maintain we make regular and consistent references to (laughs) Kilholman. Listen. Let, let me let me close out our single cast nation news. Uh, oh, that's right. Our single cast nation Inter-Min news. Intermittent Coleman references. And mm-hmm. say just just one other one other bottle here. I opened our U.S. retail release number nine Kalila, and poured that on my travels, and the number of people who said this is the sweetest Kalila I've I've ever had. This is. This is so sweet did, did you know this was sweet when you bottled it? I'm like I, The samples didn't strike me as particularly sweet But <laughs> as we taste it in this group there is a sweetness there, there's no doubt about it, but it, it crushed as well. And if you can find that Kalila in retail across the US, good luck to you, buy it the second you see the it. The
0: second you see it. I'm, gonna, I'm going to make a very declarative statement here, Jason. Here it comes, here it comes. Just as our nine-year-old Milton Duff was my, f- the f- my favorite Milton Duff bottled that I've ever had, our most recent seven-year-old Kalila, the one you're mm-hmm. talking about, the marriage of two Casts, mm-hmm. is my favorite peated Kalila I've had to date. Period. Mm. It's so satisfying. It's got that 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 youthful Isla pleasingness, that incredible like sweetness and fruitiness coming coming through as well. It's it's like it's like a bowl of just like the freshest sherbet. It's it's awesome. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So there you go. So I, I poured a range of things, and those were those were three highlights. I could continue, but I will not. And uh, and I will say yeah. So works, crushed it. Take two. Wolf Island might be better than the original. And that Kalila on retail, people loved its sweetness. So there you go. Three takeaway points from my my recent round of of on the road tastings.
0: There you go. Uh, the only other thing that I'll add, we've mentioned this before, is we've we've got a few things in the hopper ready to be bottled. American spirits, both both single malt and bourbon, uh, coming down the pipe.
1: Since we're in the news segment, I'm going to do something a little bit newsy that's not necessarily Single Cast Nation, but we have had people asking about Premier Drams after it came up in the conversation with Uh, Bill Thomas. Yeah. And people are saying, you know, is this on the website? You know, where can I get information about this? I did reach out to Bill (laughs) to say, hey, Bill, what can we tell people? And he said, oh, we moved the date. So... Uh, Currently, okay. (laughs) Do you remember in the interview when I said to him, "Like, okay, you've given me a date on the interview. Are we okay? This for?" And he said, "Yep, that's
0: the date." Yeah, it was like July seven or something.
1: He, He said, "Look, I've changed the date enough times. I'm not changing the date again." Well, he changed the date again after the episode went live. Okay. Now they're talking somewhere in the month of September. I'm. I'm waiting to see if it really happens in September, if it gets pushed on again. I, I, I'm I, not convinced it's going to happen in September. It's been March, it's been April, it's been July, yeah, they were talking July 2nd and 3rd. Mm. Um, they, they were kind of in that, you know, I think that ended up being a Sunday-Monday or something like that, so mm. yeah, there's, <sighs> there's, there's some movement there. But anyway, for people who have reached out, thanks for your interest in Premiere Drams. Single Cast Nation will still be there, depending on when it falls in September. And if we are there, we will still have a Harvey Fry pour uh, under the table. Be sure to ask for it. But Beauty. as we get more details from Bill, we will update listeners of the pad cost. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah, it's tough when someone commits to a date and then we let it live on wax and then that date changes and we're kind of trying to undo it all so here we are news segment
0: announcement well the the good news is the previous date didn't work for me so maybe the new date will work for me and i can go down
1: (laughs) yes september is a wide open month in the whiskey calendar i have no doubt that we'll be able to attend did you pick that up in my voice did i did i deliver that
0: Every time I, I just float a hope out there, you're like, oh, I'll oh, see, yeah. I see that hope, and I'll raise you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hopelessness. It's
1: the hope, it's the hope that kills you. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I'm protecting you. It's a moral act, Joshua.
0: So listen, we have an email to get to. I have a PDF on my desktop ready to open. And then we have a conversation about pronunciation. So why don't... Oh, okay.
1: A couple quick things.
0: Yeah, a couple quick things. So why don't why don't you... You want to lead us with this email? You um, said a PDF came in.
1: Uh, well, I have a PDF on my desktop. What, what's amazing will be revealed in this email. Okay. So... Trevor Wiki took the time to, Wiki, to send Wiki, us a Wiki. message
0: Wiki, uh, Wiki. in the
1: second second half of May here. And he says, Dear lady and gentlemen, I included Jess as she might be tasked with looking after the one email account, as the other account is clearly Jason's responsibility. Huh. To assist Jason, I have created this PDF with the response so he didn't have to go through the additional steps of printing an email to a PDF. And let me just say this, Trevor, that was much appreciated. All I had to do in my email was hit save, and I saved this PDF email to my desktop, and I I just opened it right away. I opened it a second ago. Easy peasy. I My email is turned off. How wonderful.
0: I just, uh, so by Trevor's, the way, I've, yes. I've uploaded an ear horn to your to your laptop <laughs> in case you need to hear have me have you
1: seen this is this is a complete aside have you seen the new sketchers commercial where they talk at this for the slides that they've got and it has a built-in uh foot horn is that what they're called shoehorn shoe horn. it's got a built-in shoehorn and in the commercial it like highlights this wishbone shaped part on the back of the shoe and i'm looking at it like you know you're a man of a certain age, and you're like, hmm, built-in shoehorn. Wait, you have my attention. Aren't
0: slides just basically flip flops with no with no back? <laughs> I mean, they're so, just like so I'm, I'm, yeah.
1: So I'm talking slides, as in you just slide your foot right in it. It's a it's a shoelace-free sneaker. Is oh, really what we it call is.
0: those slip-ons. We call those slip-ons. There you go.
1: I I got into trouble last time I talked about strapping things on, so I didn't want to slip (laughs) on things and get into more trouble. So, okay. So Trevor writes. Imagine my imagine my surprise on April fifteenth, driving around, running errands, catching up on pad costs, Mm -hmm. and I hear my name being discussed. I immediately called (laughs) my wife to inform her. She said, we will discuss it after running errands.
0: <laughs> I'd love texted- to hear the tone in her voice. We'll discuss this after you're done running errands, Trevor.
1: <laughs> Have you finished running those errands? Don't bring your podcast <laughs> chat to me until you're done. So he says, I texted my whiskey group. And they were much more supportive. (laughs) (laughs) Side note, (laughs) side note. My wife did eventually listen to the show, as did two out of three of my children. I am putting this in the win column. My God, we're boosting listenership by mentioning Trevor's name. This is awesome.
0: What's what's that one child doing that the others are not?
1: (laughs) Maybe they're not allowed to listen to the F-bomb or strap-ons or, you know, anything else.
0: Yeah, that could be.
1: Okay, so here we go. So this is called, this section of the email is called The Port Charlotte Trade.
0: Oh, Oh, okay.
1: Backstory. Fall of 2021, I hosted an afternoon of whiskey and cigars while watching a football game. Everyone brought a different bottle and we set the price point at $30 with the understanding that you left with a different bottle. Oh, wow. Joshua's key party joke inserted here. (laughs) Trevor says, I chose Wild Turkey 101. uh, Always does well. And some people were novice whiskey drinkers. One gentleman, original owner of the Port Charlotte, brought a Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve. Okay. As the host at the end of the evening, I picked last and was awarded the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve. Hmm. And then this is great. Fast forward spring of 2022. After a round of <laughs> golf, my friend. Uh, that friend slash gentleman with the Port Charlotte mm-hmm. Was lamenting that he needed to swing past binny's As he had just finished a bottle of Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve And needed to replace it Off the cuff, I said I would trade the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve For the Port Charlotte He took my hand and shook it and said, done Wow I was was stunned (laughs) The two other people golfing with us Were equally stunned as well I returned home after parting ways And 30 minutes later My friend showed up at my door With three bottles Wow I I received a Glenfiddich A Johnny Walker Double Black Mm -hmm. And the three-quarter full Port Charlotte He received the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve I tried to get him to select something Um, from my collection But nothing suited his taste I ended up picking up his next two rounds of golf Which my friend felt was fair See... Only men, she's listened to this podcast. Yeah. What well, right? What a great act, right? Yeah. Oh, nothing fits your palate. Here, I still owe you. Let me get something back. Very nice. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. That makes me so happy. The double black was too peaty for my friend, mm. and the Glenfiddich wasn't in his palate wheelhouse, according to him. Mm. I've inf- I've included a photo of the Russell Reserve tag for your review and the photos of the Kilholman that was discussed. There's another intermittent Kilholman reference. (laughs) Sincerely, Trevor Wickey, P.S. If you are ever in the Chicagoland area and feel the need to socialize with members of the nation, let me know. P.P.S. I am excited about the upcoming VDC release from Single Cast Mm -hmm. Nation, as I am confident that I will not win a wild turkey lottery. And then he finishes... Furthermore, I was at whiskey dinner earlier this year mm-hmm. And the standout was the 16-year-old double cask Aberlour, Paired with an apple cake and caramel sauce Ooh. Here endeth the PDF email
0: That is really, really
1: nice Isn't that wild, though, to have someone who's kind of like Glenfiddich doesn't fit my palate? But but I'll drink that Glenlivet Caribbean cask all day long. Yeah,
0: well, it's it's obvious, right? It's. I mean, granted, the Port Charlotte has a sweetness, but it's got that earthiness to come along with it. Where the Glenfiddich Caribbean cask, I don't know if you've had it, but to me, this is this is Glenlivet. Sorry, Caribbean Gl- I, Reserve. I, I'm sorry. I, I meant I meant Glenlivet. It's one of those whiskeys that's cloyingly sweet, but if you like that, mm. then you've you've got a fantastic whiskey in your hand. I mean, it's 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 a great whiskey if you like them sweet, no doubt about it. That's
1: taste, right? It it's fine to like one thing yeah. and not like another. I, I'm just I'm just always curious about people's palates and and how they line up. Sure. I, I'm also really digging the fact that we've moved into a world of serial emails, right? <laughs> like we, we got the one about one group meeting another group at Tobermory and both sides are writing in. Here we've got Trevor talking about swapping out whiskeys and us being curious about, oh, I wonder what he got. And then he writes in and tells us. Yeah, I, yeah, we get the I love background. It. And, 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 and just like we started today's episode, you know, hearing these comments about the pad cost. And how edifying those are! Yeah, these serial emails are are edifying in their own way as well. So sincere thanks to Trevor. I'm I'm glad his wife finally sat down and, and listened. I, you know, I hope he only made her listen to the part where uh, where he was mentioned, and they they didn't have to sit through a, a series of you know strap-on jokes and you know defecation and sophomoric humor. So. Joshua firmly hopes that they sat down and listened to all two and a half hours of the episode. Yeah,
0: you you make you make it sound kinda gross. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever listened back to any of these? <laughs> it's great every second. Listen, um <laughs> so you you had mentioned that James Foster had a yes. comment that we had pronounced the liqueur that he used, we pronounced the name incorrectly, but we also received an email from someone saying the very same, and then I received a text from someone saying that we've mispronounced this. So so my question to you is, Jason, do you uh-huh. do you have something to read from James, or should we just read this email that came in?
1: Yeah, use use the email. I want to see if this email aligns with uh, with uh, Foster because, as I said to you, when we revealed his recipe, his three to one, what was it? Three to one, uh, wee beastie to to Sinar, as we were calling as it. As we were calling it, um, he, James, as a nor of Greek and a nor of Latin, mm. actually was using the root to. To inform his pronunciation, so I'm curious what comes in from uh, from this email.
0: Okay, so this email came in from Jelani Alexander, and the subject is the name. So we were calling it Cynar, C Y N A R, C C-Y-N-A. Y.
1: There you go. There
0: you go. And Jelani says, "Hi, J and J." I just finished listening to the latest pod, really enjoyed the DTC conversation. Awesome. As a drinker here in Washington State, does, does, Do James, does James know, Jelani? Uh, nope, nope. James, in, James is in northern Idaho. Oh, best just across the border.
1: Right. <laughs> Sad like an East Coast Elite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> elite. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, little man. Um, uh, so, uh, as a drinker here in Washington State, I'm very interested in purchasing from other states because both our taxes and relative dearth of dedicated spirits retailers. Yeah, the mm-hmm. the, the price that a bottle costs in Washington State compared to like every other state in the union is stunning. Anyway, yeah,
1: that was the that was the vagaries of public ownership going over to private ownership, mm. and uh, and the state not wanting to lose all of its tax revenue, its tax on tax, which is it is tough. Oh,
0: it is tough. a little double dipping. Anyway, so Jelani jumps back in and says, "However, I'm I am actually writing to give a little pronunciation assistance." <laughs>
1: Getting lunged, Jelani. Getting
0: lung. C Y N A R <laughs> is pronounced Chinar.
1: There we go. There we go.
0: Which I thought, Jason, was that lady cat person from Thundercats, the one that I had a crush on. <laughs> chinar was like the hottest of all Thundercats.
1: <laughs> And of course, just just for just for purists, that is of course Chitaro. So just for purists,
0: excuse me, Chitara, not Chitara. <laughs> Chitara. Chitaro Chitarra. would would have been maybe her brother. And Chita- I just let I don't swing that way. I'm sure he was very handsome, but that's.
1: <laughs> that's I went to school with Chitaro. That's the only way I knew his sister. <laughs>
0: Oh, you guys so, so, You guys had uh, uh, IP, <laughs> AP French together, didn't you? Anyway uh, so, so uh, I thought you were
1: going to say uh, You guys had IP Freely together
0: <laughs> Jelani finishes off the email by saying Love the pod And SCN Still lamenting the late Great Whiskey Jubilee Seattle Take care <laughs> Jelani, Pronounced, And you're going to like this Oh, yes. G-E-H dash or hyphen L-O-N-N-Y, which I take to be Gelani, which apparently is a soft G, <laughs> which sounds like a very hard G.
1: <laughs> We're not opening that can of worms again.
0: Because <laughs> I don't think it's Galani. It's got to be Jelani. Right?
1: Galani. Could be Galani. Okay. G e h to me, but is like Josh, gay.
0: like J, G, G, Gilani, but J, sir so, so, like you're either a J or a H with a J.
1: I tell you, we're not we're not going back to velar plosives. We've we've lived that <laughs> life. I'm not going back. I'm not doing that again. Um, so anyway, yeah, J, yeah, yes. So so James's pronunciation very similar. James's to my ear, sounds a bit like you doing your Trump impression of him saying China.
0: China. Yeah, like China or China. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh, it's kind of like, like you're you're expanding it out, like you're getting that chis sound in the beginning. So China, China.
0: Yeah, you kind of have to raise your, sh- you, you can't right? say it without and you gotta- lifting your shoulders. China.
1: Right, and the hand accordion to get all of the sounds in there. Yeah,
0: That's, yeah, that, 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 that all out. We're only entertaining each other at this
1: point, <laughs> we're just looking at each other doing our own hand accordion impressions. <sighs> yeah, all yes. right. so there you go. Yeah, yeah, from the from the Latin. yeah it's a it's a ch, and then it's uh and then it's a y. Sometimes an i. Sometimes you know, yeah. know the the restaurant where James and I were actually dining together had a. Chinar cocktail That we both had
0: And so what was in it Really quickly
1: There was the Chinar And then another bitter And Yeah there wasn't Really a main spirit Carrying this And there was a bit of citrus in it It was really a, a bitters Cocktail
0: That sounds awesome
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was all right. It was all right. It wasn't quite as bright as I like. Yeah. You... I like brightness. Yeah. I, I would have liked more lime in it. There was just a bit of lime.
0: Just to offset that, that bitter quality.
1: Right, right. right. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I had one, not to speak out of school. James had two. Um, mm. I, I moved on to a tangerine wheat ale because I needed like, big brightness in my mouth. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's like you, your operating system just crashed there. You were like, too many jokes. Too many dick jokes. Crash. And then, and then oh. I just saw the reboot as your eyes kind of flickered back yeah, to life again. I
0: had to, I had to control alt delete. I had to zap my PRAM. I, 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 You're just like <laughs>
1: like nodding at me over the video, like not not big nod, bright
0: mm. in mouth. <laughs> huh. What do I do?
1: Can't can't say all jokes at once.
0: <laughs> listen, listen. Just listen. overload Before this goes off the rails. We do have to get out of here. I don't know if you know that, Jason, but we've reached that we point. Do. Yeah, we we have, we have. So I want I want to do this in order of things, mostly. Oh boy. Mostly first, oh boy. and most importantly, huge thanks to to Jeff Bloom, uh, to Amanda Beckwith, and to yourself, Jason, Indeed. for conducting Thank the interview. Um, cheers! Cheers! A massive thanks to Hassan Pfeffer and. John M. Kill or John K. Mill, John K. Mill, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Stewart's uh, cousin. John Stewart's cousin for for writing in to Apple Podcasts and giving us five stars and a nice comment. Much Anyone else who wants to do that, please go ahead, and we will do a little name check and read your comment here. <laughs> um, <laughs> huge thanks to Trevor Wiki for following up on his Port Charlotte story and. For sending Jason uh, a portable document file, portable data file.
1: <laughs> portable document format. Either format. way, let's not get back in the weeds. Uh,
0: and then finally to Jelani or Gilani. Man, see, I think mm, we screwed that up. You're
1: thinking about it now. You're thinking uh, about it.
0: Alexander for, and, and James, of course, for correcting us. Of course. And how to pronounce Chinar rather than Sinar. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah if if you know i I don't mean to to take over your podcast here i'm just used to doing it extra extra but if if anyone wants to follow in trevor or galani's footsteps how might they do it joshua
0: they could email us questions at one nation under whiskey.com of course there is no e in the word whiskey so keep it as far away from that word as possible Or you can email us info at singlecasknation.com. There is no E in single. Oh, there is an E in single, isn't there? Yeah, anyway, info at singlecasknation.com. You can email us there, and uh, and we'd be more than happy to get to your email. We actually do have uh, a handful of other emails to get to. They just happen to be kind of... It's interesting. Many of our listeners have emails... That tend to be as long-winded as we are. <laughs> like you're we. Am I wrong, Jason? Am I wrong?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, t- today has been a, a ton of fun hearing from so many people and getting names. You know, hearing from from Gilani Galani for the very first time um, is a real treat. And uh, and as much as they've thrown. Uh, throwing the spotlight back mm-hmm. onto whiskey jubilee um yeah yeah there's there's fun to be had out in the world but hearing from listeners is really that's why we do this joshua as much as we do thoroughly enjoy just <laughs> whittering on at one another it is also <laughs> nice when other people do tune in so thank you it is nice
0: it is nice so on that note jason listeners i say i'd say i raise my glass but i don't have a glass I can't cheers. I'm gonna raise
1: my coffee mug and it's gonna make a terrible sound when I clank it
0: off my AirPod case. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take my teacup and clink it off of my ballpoint oh. pen. I'll pick up my boner pen then. Oh, go easy. All right. Cheers, Jason cheers, and everybody.
1: <laughs> cheers, bud. Bye bye. Bye everybody. Cool. <laughs>